Welcome to Renal Cell Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. The recent 2007 ASCO meeting in Chicago included a number of encouraging presentations related to targeted molecular therapy of renal cell cancer, and I met with Dr. David Quinn for his take on the clinical and research implications of these data. To begin, Dr. Quinn commented on a key paper, the first report of the so-called Avorin trial, evaluating interferon alone or with bevacizumab. They took previously non-treated metastatic clear cell carcinoma, and they randomized the patients either to get fairly standard dose, low-dose subcutaneous interferon three times per week in both arms, and then they allocated people to get Avastin infusion or not in a fairly standard regimen, similar to what most community oncologists would use for colon cancer. And they followed for a progression-free survival endpoint. We now today see the progression-free data, which shows a doubling of progression-free survival. And I think this is good news in the first line. In previous years, we've seen a doubling of progression-free survival in the first line for sunitinib over interferon, which was the standard therapy. And then the year before that, we saw a doubling in progression-free survival in the second line for serafinib over and above placebo. So it's all good news. And then for the poorest patients, obviously, we have temsorolimus. And just how these different agents fit in is something that no doubt we're going to have to discuss today and try and work out in our practices. That's exactly what I wanted to ask you in terms of where are we now? What does this all mean? Well, I think it's difficult. You can't compare one trial done in the first-line setting to another. Even if you classify the patients in the same way, they are different groups, and they're done in different countries, different practices. Prior to the release of this trial, interferon usage in the United States had dropped to virtually zero. And so from that perspective, those people who were still going to give a cytokine in the first line were going to do high-dose interleukin-2 in an attempt to cure the small proportion of patients that can be cured with that. So the Avorin data raises the question of where interferon fits. And the big problem with interferon is that it has some activity in the disease in selected patients, but at the cost of very significant morbid side effects long term, and does not have a duration of response in most patients that's usually worthwhile. So for the practitioner looking to use Avastin, the question is, do you combine it with interferon in the first line? Do you pick up from some phase two studies that have previously been done, such as the one presented by Dr. Bukowski last year, where they looked at Avastin alone versus Avastin and Allotinib and found that there was no advantage to adding Allotinib? That was a randomized phase two study. I don't know whether we can assume too much. And so, well, but in terms of what was seen in terms of response rate and progression free survival, how did that sort of compare indirectly to what was reported here with well, the interferon? In the Avastin alone arm in that study, you know, we were looking at a progression free survival of around eight months. If one looks at all of the angiogenesis inhibitors, that's around about what you get. They're all around about between six and 11 months, and depending on what setting you give them in the trials. And there are clearly some patients that benefit and some that don't. We're still working that out. But looking at it, we have a choice of four agents. We have serafinib, sunitinib, Avastin, whether alone or in combination, and then temsorilimus. And a practitioner could try and pick any one of them. And there may be an argument to say it doesn't matter what angiogenesis inhibitor you start with, provided people get exposed. 
The other thing that's come out is that certainly in sequencing patients between Avastin, which is obviously a VEGF ligand inhibitor, and the tyrosine kinase inhibitors, serafinib and sunitinib, indeed between the two tyrosine kinase inhibitors, we see clinical benefit as indicated by actual patient response and disease shrinkage by whatever criteria and prolonged disease stability in patients that grew through the other agent. So we used to think, for example, the TKIs were the same. They were like ACE inhibitors and you were just switching one for another, there's no point. In actual fact, they do have differences in activity that's pointed to by the original biological evaluation. And I think it's a mix and match. And where you start is going to be a clinical decision, certainly in the next year or two before we have trials to help us. And it may be predicated by side effects. We do not have a big experience with the mTOR inhibitor temsorilimus outside of the poor risk categories that were presented in Dr. Hutter's study last year at the ASCO plenary. And therefore, its usage as a weekly infusional agent outside of poor risk, I think, is questionable, but I think we'll have more data and impacts some pathways that should be important in other categories of better risk cancer. But interestingly, in the original randomized phase two, headed up by Dr.'s Atkins and Dutcher, which was presented some years ago at ASCO, there didn't seem to be an effect so much, particularly in good risk patients for temsorolimus, or CCI779 as it was called at the time. So I think we're left with a choice of do you run with Avastin therapy in the first line, in which case the textbook way to give it would be with interferon. The issue there would be that most of the side effects are predicated based on the interferon therapy which is difficult to give even in responding patients beyond six months. And then the other issue is whether you would start with either serafinib or sunitinib. Now, sunitinib has the best data in the first line. A study done with serafinib comparing it in a randomized phase two study did not suggest that serafinib had greater activity than interferon, although it did produce a better quality of life. Coming on the back of that, we have even more information from the access studies that were run close to the licensure of serafinib and sunitinib, and they actually paint a slightly different picture. They were presented yesterday, and the suggestion there is that serafinib looked to have not unreasonable activity in the first line in a large, more community-based setting, and indeed, as did sunitinib. And so the message may be, you can throw them all up in the air. Pick your favourite one based on your patient and what you think the toxicity profile might be. I have a bias really not using Avastin outside of a trial as yet. That may change tomorrow. I usually pick between the two tyrosine kinase inhibitors if I have a patient that cannot get hand-foot because they have a dexterous job or something like that, they play in the orchestra or some such like that, then I will probably steer away from serafinib because that's the major side effect of the drug and put them on sunitinib. Older patients, I have a belief which may not be founded in science that they tolerate serafinib better than sunitinib because of fatigue issues. And interestingly, the issues that are now coming out about sunitinib and thyroid function may be really very solidly based in practice. And it's a sort of note to self with these recent publications from Brian Rinney and further presentation here at ASCO to say, you know, we really need to monitor the thyroid function biochemically and clinically because some of these patients are getting tired because they're hypothyroid, and I think they probably need to be replaced. And certainly we have had a number of patients in my practice have been in that situation. And they seem to be older patients, and they do benefit, at least clinically, from thyroid replacement therapy. 
So I just thought about 75 questions based on what you just said, but let's take it one by one. First, kind of starting at the back end first in terms of the thyroid issue you just mentioned with sunitinib. What's your take right now in terms of what the incidence is of this problem and how much is it related to the duration of the therapy? I'll dodge that a little bit, then try and answer. I think because these are new therapies, we do not know. The reason this has come up is that these are chronic therapies. And with chronic dosing, we find things that you wouldn't otherwise find in a trial where they're presented with 12 to 16 months follow-up. And I think the answer is that thyroid function abnormalities are very, very common on both of these drugs. Serafinib also? Also serafinib, yeah. We had recent data, an abstract form here at ASCO documenting that. And that's our clinical experience. Matching with that experience from the Cleveland Clinic, we have not had that many people that we've considered to be clinically hypothyroid on serafinib, whereas for patients on sunetinib, we have certainly seen patients who've been clinically hypothyroid, and we've had a patient on each of sunetinib and serafinib who has been hyperthyroid with classic autoimmune antibody thyroiditis, which is interesting. So these drugs impact the thyroid. The change in thyroid function tests on these drugs may impact as many as 80% of the patients. But clinical thyroid abnormalities, it may be 20%, or it may increase the longer we give the drug. You also mentioned the issue about temporalinus and poor risk disease. First of all, how do you define or how is poor risk versus good risk defined? We've classically used the Memorial Sloan Kettering Mozart criteria, of, uh, and they do vary slightly. Elevation of serum lactate dehydrogenase, hypercalcemia, anemia, poor performance status, and then interchangeably whether they've had a nephrectomy or not. A nephrectomy patients did better in the original classification treated with cytokine therapy. And the other factor in there is time from diagnosis to first treatment. So a longer time has a better prognosis and they have less rapidly progressive disease. You can pick those if they have zero or one, they're good risk, two intermediate, three or more, poor. And this formulation is very predictable and I think is useful for clinical practice. And I use it for counselling patients because essentially the poor risk patients have a median survival of somewhere between five and eight months, depending on the classification. The intermediate risk patients, somewhere between a year and 18 months. The good risk patients are often out beyond two years, sometimes two to three years. And classifying the patient at the beginning can let them know what their natural history is based on a large validated database. So I find that useful. Now, having said that, We have a whole new sleuth of therapies. We've got four new agents that are essentially going to be in the clinic sitting on the shelf ready for us to give these patients. And so we are going to see some changes. So, for example, at this meeting, Robert Mozart gave a very elegant presentation looking at his original classification and applying it to patients who'd been treated with sunitinib and demonstrating that, interestingly, lactate dehydrogenase seemed to drop out. Now, I'm sure that we're going to find other factors as we study these. And I think what I'd encourage the companies to do is they've done their studies. They have a certain amount of resource to look at them. And I would really like to see them do the Apple thing and go open source and make their data available to people to put together as many nomograms, classifications and analyses that can happen. Because I don't think that they will always analyze the data the way the clinicians want it analyzed. After all, they are working for their company, which is a slightly different skew to us treating the patient. And then there's always people that are going to cut things up and generate hypotheses that are going to be important later for us just learning about the drugs. And so from that perspective, I think classifying poor, intermediate and good risk 
is important. Now, when we come to mTOR inhibition with Temsorilimus, Gary Huddis presented a great study last year, which was the most mature data we've seen. And they had to hold the data because they didn't understand the progression-free issues with the three arms. They understood that interferon was not producing a very good progression-free survival in the poorest patients, but they had relative equipoise between the combination arm with a lower dose of temsorilimus and a lower dose of interferon and the full dose of temsorilimus. So they really waited until they had full overall survival data, which showed very distinct advantage, at least statistically, and I think probably clinically for the single agent, and also probably less morbidity and side effects. So from that perspective, it was a clean study, but done in a group of patients that make up about 15% of renal cancer. And it was done in a lot of different countries, a lot of different centres, most accruing a relatively low number of patients. And unless you're a big referral centre, you don't see that many poor-risk patients. And they tend to have a poor performance status by definition and can deteriorate rapidly and are difficult to get on study. So the real salient issue is, I think there are two. One is that these patients melt in front of you and they're the ones you remember because they die badly. And I think that we have something that helps them and looks to be very well tolerated with manageable size effects and I'd encourage people to use that now it's licensed. The other thing is the role of temsorilimus in other settings. So I would be reluctant I think to try it in a good risk patient in a first line but I'd be happy to see data in that setting. Some of the intermediate patients may benefit, but I don't think it's a standard of care. I think that the TKIs and possibly Avastin-based therapy represent a standard of care for good risk patients that are progressing or that have symptoms and intermediate risk patients. And then there may be a role in the second, third or fourth line for mTOR inhibition. What do we know about the response to temsorilinus in the good risk patients? And what do we know about the response in poor risk patients to the other agents, sinitinib, serafinib, and BEV? Okay. The data that we have for uh, temsorilimus were published in JCO. I think it's in 2004, but you might care to check that, a paper from uh, Janice Dutcher and Michael Atkins, where they looked at the clinical outcomes in the three groups, but also the, some of the molecular correlative things, which are important, I won't go into here but it led to the selection of this particular group for the trial. And the problem with these agents is that across the board, if you run on response, it may not accurately tell you how you're doing. So resist is not quite useless in that if patients rampantly grow, it's helpful. You know, they're not doing well. But you don't need to be Albert Einstein to tell the patient's not doing well in that setting. It's more problematic because you get a clinical benefit rate across the board of some sort of disease control in 80%. And if one looks at the temporal studies that have been done, the response rates by Reese's criteria for partial response are, you know, in the study presented last year by Dr. Hudders, the rates of response in each arm were around 10%. That's a pattern that they have in common with the TKIs. There's a higher response rate in the Avoran trial, but remember that interferon will produce a transient shrinkage, and even when we had interferon alone, we didn't always know what that meant. So translating is difficult, and we now need to move to the paradigm where we say to our patients, you know, if you have stable disease or even just a little bit of shrinkage, it's likely that you're in a group of patients that are benefiting from this. And then the other factor is overall, how are we doing with you? Are you better, the same, or worse for your quality of life while we're putting things on hold? The other concept that patients often don't like is that these drugs stabilise your disease, they will not cure you, 
and we don't know whether we can stop them. And the likelihood is that we can't. And as one patient said to me, he said, so if I take this tablet, it's like my herpes, it's forever. And if I go off it, then I run risk of progressing. And the answer is yes. We don't know about holidays from drug and what have you. Can you comment on the issue of sunitinib, serafinib, and bevacizumab in poor risk patients' response rates? Okay. I think we still have limited data in those sets. I think what we know about poor risk is that cytokines are ineffective. And the French demonstrated that over a series of trials. And indeed, coming into their most recent set of cytokine trials excluded poor risk patients entirely. They did not run a national protocol for those patients. Now, with regards to anecdotal evidence, which is all we have in the other sets for poor risk patients, there are responses. But it seems like there are a higher proportion of patients who go on to the TKIs who just blow through. In a standard population, the people that really progress by 12 weeks on serafinib or sunitinib, I think are about the same. It's probably 15 to 20% that come off or for whatever other reason you can't deliver a dose or what have you. My impression in poor risk patients is that it's at least double that and it may be half the patients blow straight through a TKI. The data with temsorolimus suggests that that should be better and I think that now it's available. If you've got a poor risk patient in front of you, they probably need to go on that. It's a little bit difficult because we don't have a structured or even the beginnings of a structured sequential paradigm for those patients. And I think that people would say, well, if we want to run another trial in poor risk disease, you know, how do we do it? And I think that it would be not unethical to run uh, TKI versus temsorolimus or another mTOR inhibitor in that disease group, provided there was a paradigm where we said, okay, if we don't think this patient's doing well, we switch them over to temsorolimus as the proven therapy. And then your endpoint has to be progression-free survival rather than overall survival because you won't be able to prove it in that design. So from that perspective, I would not give a combination of any cytokine to a patient with poor risk disease. Would I give Avastin as a single agent? I don't think we have any evidence in that area yet, and I'd like to see some. Is there any biologic reason to think that patients with poor risk disease would respond to a different spectrum of agents than a good risk disease? Yeah. Getting back to the work done at the renal spore at Harvard with Mike Atkins and colleagues, they demonstrated that the P10 phospho-AKT mTOR pathway was important in defining, in a molecular sense, these poor risk patients. And so from that perspective, it seems like mTOR would be a more sensible target. And so, yes, one would think. Less of these patients appear to have a classic renal cell von Hippel-Lindau mutated or methylated genotype and phenotype. And so they may not have the hypoxic phenotype, which has been characterized quite well in the last few days with obviously elevated VEGF, elevated hypoxia markers like carbonic anhydrase 9, which has been developed at UCLA and is currently being tested prospectively, and alteration to cell cycle markers that make kidney cancer entirely different from anything else. So that a hypoxia marker in the cell cycle is elevation of cyclin D1, which in kidney tumors correlates with a better outcome. Well, in every other cancer where cyclin D1 is up, particularly breast, head and neck or lung cancer, it's a bad thing. A hypoxia in kidney cancer tumors is a good thing. In other tumors, it's a bad thing. So kidney cancer is sort of the 180 degree around 
type thing, probably because of its reliance in this area. Uh, presentation on behalf of the Cleveland Clinic and UCSF looking at von Hippel-Lindau status yesterday in the podium session from Tony Schieri showed that we still have a lot to learn about that and the phenotypic and genotypic issues related to von Hippel-Lindau can predict outcome to certain therapies and they had a good size set but it was all hypothesis driven and it may be that in the future we actually do an analysis of these markers on patients and say listen you do not have a hypoxic phenotype you're part of another group and it seems like more of the people that fit into that other group are actually the poor risk patients that don't seem to respond to the more direct VEGF and platelet-derived growth factor pathway inhibition that you get with our two TKIs and appear to do better with the mTOR effect, which is an effect to inhibit VEGF through hypoxia-inducible factor and also cell cycle regulation, certainly through CMEC and also seemingly through cyclins DNA. So different molecular factors appear to be important. Whether they'll play out into the clinic for the community oncologist is something that we really need to test. So for practical purposes, in the poor risk patient who is now progressed on Tamsirolinus, which, if any of the other three agents, would you consider using? My personal bias would be to start most often with a TKI, either serafinib or sunitinib. I don't have a particular preference, and I don't think it's tested. I think it's something that may be worth testing, at least in some sort of accrual of patients. Do we need to do a big randomized phase three? No, we could do a smaller study and, you know, that would help us clinically. It's going to happen in clinical practice anyway. Now, if patients who are in the poor risk group have sarcomatoid features and recollect that sarcomatoid is the bad end of differentiation to clear cell and also papillary, I think there's some evolving evidence to suggest that there may be a role for cytotoxic chemotherapy in those patients. Which agents? Often gemcitabine, and recently we've finished an intergroup study that combined adriamycin and gemcitabine. Other people, particularly out of Chicago, have looked at gemcitabine and capecitabine. But it would be my bias to think that those patients might respond better to at least a trial of chemotherapy. And I think that's an alternative. So for the sarcomatoids, I probably wouldn't give them a TKI. I'd give them a gemcitabine-based chemotherapy for at least a trial of a couple of cycles just to see whether they benefit and then to see after that. After that, you know, the time becomes short for these patients. Their deterioration tends to be rapid and they go off a cliff so that the options are limited. If you had to try something, you could look at a TKI. Our experience in poor performance status patients in other diseases with the use of Avastin has been variable in that they do tend to get a higher rate of thromboses and bleeding, also to some extent proteinuria. And from that perspective, I think in the absence of other evidence, that's the way I'd go. So you probably wouldn't use Bev? No, not at this stage. What about the patient with a good risk right now? What's your best thought in terms of what you think your first, second, and third line therapy is going to be? At the moment, I start them off on one TKI. I split about evenly between the two. We talked about factors before that would you know, mitigate for me to go to one. And then after that, I run on a sort of mental algorithm of what sort of disease control do I think I'm getting? And how is this patient tolerating this medication? And for each of the TKIs, there are about 20 to 25% of patients where they're miserable. They have rash, hand, foot syndrome, they're fatigued, they do not do well. 
And their CAT scans, you know, they're photocopies of each other. There may be some necrosis that occurs, particularly over the first few months, and there may be some relative shrinkage, but they're not doing well. In that setting, if I have a stable patient or someone I think has just got the suggestions of progression, my threshold to go to the other drug is now very low. The other TKI yeah. or BEV? The other, I would go for the other TKI. And also it depends what side effects they've had and how I think they'll do. But I would like to see some more data on sequential BEV after TKIs. I don't think we have enough data on that. Now, there is a caveat there in that given the data we're going to look at this afternoon, if I started off with one of the TKIs, patient didn't do well, and I felt they might do better on a three-weekly infusion of BEV, I may go to that, but I'm not sure that that's a standard. And I think it's likely that BEV will overall, and this needs to be borne out with some more data, will overall be better tolerated by a majority of patients, provided they don't get issues with thrombosis and bleeding and hypertension proteinuria, which don't occur in that many patients. So it'll be mix and match based on the side effects for the individual patient. But I think we've now got evidence that's come in the clinic and is now published in abstracts but not tested specifically in studies that sequential TKI inhibition can produce responses in people that were resistant or had stable disease and that the tolerability in terms of the side effect profile between the two agents is different enough so that a patient may have a particular preference for one over the other. And picking them from the start would be nice. We don't have a test for that. And we also have other issues about what a therapeutic dose is in an individual patient that we can get to if you like. And then I think at the moment I have BEV up my sleeve. I'm working out how that's going to be used. It's by far the most expensive of these therapies, but it's given intravenously. I know the patient's getting it because they get it in quotes in front of me. I suspect it's going to have a place. I think it's just going to take us a while to digest the information. Perhaps some other studies. I'd like to see the CALGB study done in the United States in a more community, less pharmaceutical controlled environment with a blinded set of arms. And I'm hoping that... What are the arms? The arms are very similar to the Ivorin study in that both arms get interferon subcutaneously, very similar dosing schedule three times a week. Oncologists are used to using that. And then a randomization to get either BEV or nothing. In this study, it's a cooperative group study done by CALGB with help from the other cooperative groups. And from that perspective, there's a much greater spectrum of physicians involved in giving the treatment and much less scrutinization from the clinical research organization for the company that's running the thing. So it's more of a real-world test. Avorin, endpoint overall survival, with a secondary analysis for progression-free survival. The CALGB study has as its primary endpoint overall survival and was conducted at a time when I think we can get an overall survival date. And the reason that we're not seeing the data sooner is that we have to wait for the overall survival events to occur. And there will be some impact to TKI therapy for those patients that have progressed. But one would anticipate that it would be even in both arms. It kind of sounds like maybe from purely from a quality of life point of view that maybe patients are going to be better off on BEV than either of the TKIs. Is that your take? I think that's possible. The caveat there is that Do we have a BEV versus placebo study to look at what the quality of life should be? Well, I don't know whether we need one. But what worries me is that the two studies where we've really evaluated BEV the best in this disease are with interferon. And between when we formulated the studies with what was felt to be some sort of standard of care and when we got the results, the world changed. You know, we had three new therapeutics 
licensed between the formulation of Ivorin and the presentation today by Bernard Escudia of the results. So placing it is difficult, but I, you may be right. Now, are we going to do a study to work this out? I think it's likely to be decided in the consultation room and clinics around the country and world rather than necessarily by any trial. What do we know about response to the a second TKI after the first one, both ways? Okay. Well, what we know is from uncontrolled data, and Dr. Escudier's group from France with some collaborators presented, as did the Cleveland Clinic and a couple of other groups at this meeting, and showed results that have a striking similarity. And the most striking similarity was that you couldn't predict response to the second TKI based on the response you saw with the first one. It was almost random. I didn't believe this data initially when it first came up, but I now think that there's a pattern in my own practice, whereas previously I was looking for a different agent when they failed TKI on the first line. Now, I routinely go to the other TKI unless there's a particular trial that they're interested in or that I think might be a better option before they do that. And you see patients that, based on rhesus criteria, pretty much grew through the first one, but then have stable disease or, in some cases, partial responses. Now, bear in mind that we don't know what to do with that, but I think what it means is that you can have a situation where they had transient disease control or no disease control in the first one, and then they had major disease control in the second one. I don't understand why that is, but I think it's real. And it'd be nice to be able to say to the patient, we've done an analysis of certain factors in your case based on clinical factors, molecular factors, genotypic factors, and we think you're more likely to respond to either sunitinib or serafinib or BEV. You know, BEV could be a good drug for you. And we saw part of that analysis yesterday in a very elegant population pharmacokinetic modelling exercise derived from the sunitinib studies where they were looking at predicting metabolism and response or actually plasma levels of sunitinib and metabolites in response. And the question there is that you could put together something which said we need to deliver a certain amount of drug to get a target concentration in your serum or plasma and we know that your chance of response, indeed in the higher plasma levels, it seemed to get up to 80%, which is quite incredible. We also know that your chance of getting side effects is X based on the plasma level, which of course relates to how much you swallow, how you metabolize it, and what your general makeup is that determines these things. I suspect we're going to have similar data with serafinib, where the dose escalation studies suggest that there are a proportion of patients, albeit it seems large in the study presented, and I suspect it's going to be smaller, that need to have an escalation of serafinib to maximize their response. Are you talking about the Amato paper yes. that's being presented here? Can you talk a little bit about that? I thought that was fascinating. Well, yeah, it's a fascinating set of data. I think that essentially what Dr. Amato did was designed a study where started on a standard dose of serafinib, 400 milligrams twice a day for patients. They all got it for one month. And at review at a month, if they did not have a particular criteria of toxicity, they escalated to 600 twice a day. And then after another month to 800 twice a day. By far a majority of patients were able to escalate to this total dose of 1,600 a day. He reports in a decent-sized, albeit phase two dose escalation cohort, a very high complete response rate. 
and very high partial response rate. And Dr Figlin, in reviewing this yesterday, made the point that we haven't seen this with TKIs to this point. And I think that does make it very interesting. The, and by the, high, I saw that as over 50%. Oh, it's a 75% overall response rate. And, of course, if one looks at the target study as a standard for serafinib, the investigator reported response rate was 10% with the other studies done with sunitinib, really between 30 and 40% partial responders in those studies. I think we're closer to the line where you won't be able to increase sunitinib much anymore in patients related to their toxicity, mainly fatigue in my practice. And also, I think they did a more complete phase one set of studies for sunitinib where they got closer to true toxicity. When the phase ones were done with serafinib, which is now some time ago, hand, foot, diarrhea and hypertension were not managed. They were actually, people were taken off rather than managed through them. So we may have settled at a lower dose for serafinib anyway than could have been delivered. And I think it's likely that there'll be factors related to the metabolism of serafinib and also sunitinib that will predict what dose we should give maybe of each of these drugs, and certainly it appears to be of serafinib. And then there are other factors about the development of major toxicities, particularly hand-foot syndrome, that seem to relate both to the organism, the person that we're treating, where there are personal propensities for them to develop this. Like what? I think related to, for example, the way uh, blockade of, let's argue that VEGF receptor 2 or RAF kinase inhibitions in the hand and feet are the cause of this, that some people will be more sensitive to this because of their genetic makeup by whatever factor than others. It may relate to race. When I travel to different parts of the world, some people perhaps in Asia report a very high rate of early hand-foot syndrome with a slightly different course to what we see in our European or as a translation, American-born Chinese people, you know, have sort of come here. There is a sleuth of factors that may be important there. And the other thing that's interesting, and we'll see this with the serafinib hepatocellular cancer data that's also being presented at the plenary today, that their rate of hand-foot syndrome in that disease is much lower than we see in kidney patients with the same, exactly the same schedule of drug. And so from that perspective, the axis of side effects may be predicated on what your primary tumour is. And we know that, for example, the VEGF axis throughout the body of patients with kidney cancer is different to people with hepatocellular carcinoma. Does it relate to the fact that hepatocellular carcinoma is not predisposed to by von Hippel-Lindau mutation or methylation or whatever? Perhaps that's probably oversimplified. And it could also be uh, investigator and study specific. But we've got quite a complicated disease management paradigm where, for whatever reason, serafinib is given at a dose that's tolerable by most people with renal cancer, hepatocellular carcinoma, and the lung trials, lung carcinoma, with a particular rate of side effects and a particular rate of disease control. So this strategy of dose escalation of serafinib, is that something you think is reasonable to do in clinical practice at this point? Well, No. I want to see the study expanded. It's going to Stanford, Omaha, and I think also New Jersey. And I want to see it done in other places. Dr. Amato's practice in Houston, I think, probably has a significant fly-in effect in that people will come there to go on trials. Houston, for years, has been a centre where people have gone to. These other centres are very good centres with immense reputation in kidney cancer trials. They've each published in other areas, and I think there may be more regional effect for those patients in a slightly different population. And then I think we need to look at the whole issue of dose scheduling. And I suspect that what is going to occur is there's going to be some sort of comparative study done looking at people who don't dose escalate 
initially and some sort of arm versus dose escalation. There are several other schedules out there. There's an NCI schedule of Monday to Friday serafinib with a weekend off as sort of intermittent scheduling. It's sort of a, I guess, a variant on the four-week-on, two-week-off sunitinib schedule. And it may be that, in actual fact, what happens when you give an intermittent schedule of these drugs is that you get a higher response rate with better tolerability and recollect that the sunitinib schedule really came out of an inability to deliver 50 milligrams per day to people continuously. We have the 37.5 milligram data which initially looked like it had a lower response rate but what Dr Srivanas and colleagues have demonstrated there is that the response comes, it's just slower and the kinetics of delivering a continuous dose are therefore extremely interesting and not something that I necessarily understand. Why should a break with a higher peak dose produce a better shrinkage of disease or a quicker shrinkage of disease than a continuous one? And we may see that with serafinib. And so an intermittent schedule at a higher dose might not be a bad idea. It may actually ameliorate some of the toxicities we see and may be possible. Any comments on the posters that are being presented here from the ARCCS data, the Expanded Access Program for Serafinib? There were several posters and really summed up by Jennifer Knox's podium presentation yesterday. Obviously, we also had Sunitinib Expanded Access Program from Dr. Gore. I think there are some very good data to come out of this, real-world data, and there are some limitations to this. This is not a clinical trial, but I think it's really interesting. So what are the summaries of things that I think are interesting there? It seems that serafinib has activity in the first line based on that, based on the report from the ARC study which runs counter to the randomised phase 2 comparison of serafinib and interferon, also reported here, where it suggested that serafinib was not so good in the first line. So which set of data do you believe? Well, I think we have to look at it in clinical practice. And my clinical practice in the first line runs closer to the ARCS data than the randomised study that was presented. The other presentations were on selected groups of patients. So we talked about first line. There's the patients with brain metastases. In that set, they'd been previously irradiated or had surgery. Interestingly, no CNS hemorrhages and similar rates of disease control, disease benefit, whatever you want to call it. And so I think that's helpful. The other big set of data to come out was activity in non-clear cell types of cancer, most particularly papillary and chromophobe cancers, where in papillary there were reasons why patients might respond to angiogenesis inhibition and that VEGF is up but it's not regulated by von Heppel-Lindau. There are other factors involved, nor seemingly by mTOR, a whole lot of pathways involved there. And so interesting to see some true partial responses in that group, but quite surprising from my perspective to see responses in chromophobe where I'd expect to see nothing. There were bona fide reported partial responses in those patients on a lot of stable disease. This is the serafinib, sunitinib? Serafinib, serafinib. So comparatively, in the sunitinib access program, they didn't seem to split out chromophobe and papillary and even from the other oncocytoma and somewhat rarer subtypes that you sometimes see. But they did demonstrate 
stable disease and partial responses in the group. We just didn't have as detailed a set of information. And so the other interesting thing to come from the serafinib access program, expanded access program reported by Dr. Gore, they showed what was a lower response, at least reported from the investigators in the first line, but a similar level of disease control. So that sort of panned out with the data we got last year from Bob Mozart in the randomized study versus interfere on the first line. Good disease control data in the second line. Most of those patients had had previous cytokine therapy, and that, I think, was a good fit with the two phase two studies that were done previously for cytokine failures with sunitinib. So that panned out. In brain metastases, it's slightly different criteria for entry. They didn't require treatment. They just required they be asymptomatic. From that perspective, no CNS hemorrhages and actually seemingly good outcomes for the patients similar to the rest of the set. We're not told whether they got concurrent radiation therapy or not. And I think that's actually a big question and a sort of separate issue. In actual fact, fairly parallel outcomes from the two studies, suggesting that what we'd seen in the trials that had been done predominantly in academic centres was translatable to clinical practice. Let's talk about where things might be headed from this point. And one obvious question is combining these agents. Yeah. All right. Well, it'd be nice to try and run a combination study, and we've got the best study that's going to run with four arms led by ECOG that will look at a series of different combinations that will incorporate BEV, serafinib, and temsorolimus. I think this is going to be an interesting study to do. There are issues with combinations of these drugs in terms of what you can deliver. You do not appear to be able to deliver full doses of BEV with serafinib. You do not appear to be able to deliver full doses of temsorolimus with serafinib, at least in most patients. So what's the problem there? Usually hand-foot syndrome has been the issue. And so from that perspective, we're going to have to compromise on one or both in terms of what we think full doses are. That may or may not be important. And I think that we need to get on and do that randomized phase two and get some data from it. So I think that's an important issue. There's another study looking at sunitinib plus or minus avastin. And if you had have asked me originally what I thought the best combination of a TKI and BEV would be, I would have picked serafinib because I think overall it's probably a slightly better tolerated TKI. But in actual fact, once again, I'm wrong. It appears that the combination of sunitinib and avastin can be delivered in full dose in at least a majority of patients. And so that randomized phase two will open in the next few months. And then we have the sequencing issue that we discussed earlier. MD Anderson will lead a trial called the START trial, which will be a multi-center trial where patients randomly go on to one of temsorolimus or sunitinib, and then they sequence through other drugs. It's a very complicated design, but I think a good one. And I think it will help us answer some questions about sequencing that otherwise won't be answered. So I think the two big issues are combinations and sequencing. And I think the initial targeting of the VEGF pathway with combinations may end up being too toxic to give, but we don't know that. We need to test it. And we've gone back in some respects to an old-style treatment and interferon with the Avoran study. And whether we need to look further at interferon and serafinib and sunitinib is a big question. I suspect we probably do. 
is the next step with us having data of serafinib and interferon to do a study of serafinib and interferon versus BEV and interferon on the first line. And it cuts to the issue of whether you really think that interferon is still a standard therapeutic intervention in renal cancer. And I think that American oncologists have voted against that in the last 18 months. So it would be sort of going back to the future. What about trials in the adjuvant setting? Okay, trials in the adjuvant setting are very important. The ECOG 2805 study looks at patients that have had a nephrectomy, have locally advanced disease, they have at least T2 disease, T2 disease is 7 centimetres or above. They can have disease outside the capsule, which is T3, or lymph node positivity, provided they have no distant metastases and they're fully resected. And they go on to a blinded randomised study that runs for a year of either serafinib, sunitinib, or placebo at standard doses. This study will require 1,300 patients. It's led by Dr. Noemi Haas and supported by all of the North American intergroup organizations. It's accruing very well. Importantly, it has tissue correlative studies and some other serum factors that are very important, a very elegant set of correlative studies that have been designed that are very important and will, I think, take us forward in more ways than just the outcome of this study. And the other issue is that a proportion of these patients will be studied for other adverse effects, including their cardiovascular profile on these drugs, which was very important because we're looking at giving them for a long time. And if they produce an adverse cardiovascular profile, that's going to be important because we're going to need to be aware of it and manage it. There is another study called the SOURCE study headed up by Tim Eisen from Cambridge in the United Kingdom. It will run in Europe multiple centres, and it's a study that will test using serafinib in the adjuvant setting for either one year or three years versus placebo, the effect not only of adding a TKI in a similar population to the ECOG study, but also the duration. And this is really, for the standard sort of oncologist sitting out there listening to this, this is where we got to with how much tamoxifen do you give after postmenopausal node positive breast cancer is the answer is it two years? Is it five years? Is it forever? And things that sort of came out of the STAR trial and what have you. What about BEV in the adjuvant setting? BEV in the adjuvant setting is interesting, and I'm not aware of a trial to test that. The problem, of course, is that, once again, what's the standard? Is it BEV and interferon? Well, Ed Messing ran a study some years ago where patients using very similar criteria to what we've talked about for this particular ECOG study were randomised to either get one year of interferon therapy subcutaneously three times a week or be observed. Now, tragically, patients that went on to the interferon arm had a median survival of about five years. Patients who were observed had a median survival of seven years. And the quality of life assessment obviously favoured observation. And whilst the differences in median survival were not quite statistically significant, I think that a two-year difference is enough to cause alarm in a study of that size and suggest to us that we needed better therapy. And people will say, why do we need to do the ECOG 2805 and the SOURCE study? Why don't we just start putting people on these drugs because we think it's a good idea. We have the regulatory issue of insurance in this country, which tends to predicate our practice. And I'd argue that the insurers and maybe the taxpayers in certain instances have a right to have the trials done before we start spending what could be $60,000 a year for these patients on drugs where we may actually have a worse outcome. 
Now, I think these drugs are much better tolerated than interferon. I do not understand why the adjuvant interferon study produced a counterintuitive result, but we need to be really careful. Every day now we hear about drugs that have been approved by the FDA in a particular indication and we discover that there is a downside. There's some side effect we couldn't have predicted or there's something else going on that is really uh, surprising. And obviously we've seen that recently with uh, erythropoietin therapy for uh, anemia related to cancer and chemotherapy.